Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 62 Play by Mail Games. So, last week, while we were doing our deep dive into Flying Buffalo Inc., we learned that they got their start as a play by mail game company. Now, I know we talked about the games they ran, but I realized pretty quickly last week that most of us have probably never heard of a play by mail game. So, I figured we'd need to deep dive that today. That being said, Jolly Blackburn knows about them because he's had a character in Knights of the Dinner Table for years who cut his teeth as a play-by-mail gamer. So, everything I knew about it before today came from the pages of the comic book. Thanks, Jolly. And I'm actually going to give you a two-for-one this week because in my research for play-by-mail games, I also learned about play-by-post games and we'll address those a little later on in the show. That means we've got a lot of content to get in, so let's crank up the tour bus and check out our first subject for the day, play-by-mail games. Before we do anything, let's define what a play-by-mail game is. It's a game played primarily through either postal mail or email, though there are some who argue if you use another form of media, you can still call it play-by-mail. However, I consider play-by-post to be its own topic, thus its separation into its own category. Now, you know me and my love of history, so we're going to dig deep for the start of the history on this one. Buckle up. Gaming historians and writers credit some of the first examples of play-by-mail games as being chess and go. As both of those are two-player games, it's assumed both players had a board set up at their house to keep track of the moves. Moves were made by each player mailing their move to the other, then waiting for the response. Lather, rinse, repeat. And if you know chess or go very well, those are games that can last for hours when the players are in the same room. So imagine how long a play-by-mail game for either of those would last. Hey, if that's your style, go with it. I just know I don't have the patience for it. Now, later on, multiplayer games began to show up in the play-by-mail genre. Diplomacy is considered by most to be, if not the first, certainly among the first of the multiplayer games to arrive on the scene when it began in 1963. The idea behind a multiplayer play-by-mail game is that there's a central game master who manages the overall game but doesn't play in it. The game master accepts moves from the other players, makes notes of those moves so that all of the other players are made aware of them, and makes decisions as needed per the rules or to manage disputes between players. And again... This was all done by mail. Referring back to our game historians and writers, most agree that there wasn't a whole lot of different play-by-mail games going on in the 1960s, and information about exactly how many players were playing during that period are sketchy at best. However, it should be added that some miniature wargamers started getting in on the trend by the end of that decade, playing Stalingrad by mail. As we learned last week, the play-by-mail game was changed forever when Rick Loomis started up Flying Buffalo Games with his business partner. We also discussed that he had a multitude of different games going on at the same time, which necessitated the purchasing of a computer to manage all of them. Both the creation of Flying Buffalo in 1970 and their use of a computer starting in 1971 changed the business forever as professional game moderation became a thing. Skipping ahead for just a second, I wanted to mention that by the late 1980s, all play-by-mail games were computer-moderated. 
All right, going back to the 1970s. Our historians and writers agree that from 1970 until about uh, early 1976, Flying Buffalo was the play-by-mail company in the United States. Sure, there were others, but Flying Buffalo was to the play-by-mail game what TSR would be for the fantasy role-playing game. In early 1976, Schubel and Son joined the race with their game, Tribes of Crane. The first thing that we should know about Tribes of Crane was that it was a human-moderated game, which automatically made it different from Flying Buffalo's offerings. Second, Schubel and Son introduced innovations to the fee structure. Basically, what this did was allow players to pay for more options or special actions not covered in the rules. Think of it as a loot crate in a video game. And just like a loot crate, it meant that the player with money to burn had the opportunity to pick up advantages over their fellow competitors. And I'm certain the players who didn't have the money to burn felt the same way about that as I do about loot crates. They suck. My opinion Yours may vary. The two-horse race for play-by-mail players soon became three, as Superior Simulations released Empyrean Challenge in 1978. Now, there's not a lot of info on that game that's readily available, but when Jim Townsend reviewed it in the PBM Corner for White Wolf Magazine number 11 in 1988, he called it, quote, the most complex game system on Earth, end quote. He noted later in the article that there were some large position turn results that were a thousand pages in length. And while I couldn't confirm it, I have to believe that that means Empyrean Challenge was a computer-moderated game. I mean, I get tired of scrolling through Facebook for a couple of minutes, trying to wrangle a thousand pages for turn results. (laughs) That's brutal. Backing up a bit on our timeline, we need to show our friends in the United Kingdom a little love. While they could play games by mail, they didn't have their own commercial play-by-mail system until after a fellow named Chris Harvey started ICBM. In about 1971, Harvey had been in the U.S. and had played Nuclear Destruction. Harvey liked it so much, he'd gotten in contact with Rick Loomis. Loomis suggested that Harvey should start up a game in the U.K. and Flying Buffalo would provide the computer moderation for it. So, in creating ICBM, Harvey basically created a secondary market for play-by-mail games, as he not only published Flying Buffalo's games, but also those from KGC and Mitre Games. What he did, basically, was publish the games and get players involved. He then relied on the computer moderation provided by the companies he was licensing from. Pretty smart deal if you can get it. And not all that different from third-party publishers creating content for games like D&D, if you think about it. Wizards of the Coast, well, they create the system, and then third-party publishers can produce their own adventures for it. Of course, that example sounds a whole lot better than the way I presented Harvey's deal, but hey, I'm not knocking either one of them. By the early 1980s, the number of players playing play-by-mail games was growing. It was noted in the Space Gamer in 1980 that the number of play-by-mail moderators was, quote, plentiful, end quote. However, despite the large number of players coming into this section of the hobby, there weren't a lot of whole play-by-mail companies. There were two big ones, Flying Buffalo and Shubal and Son, and a handful of others trying to work their way into that top tier, like Superior Simulations. And that split shows in the two most popular games of 1980, Flying Buffalo's Star Web and Shubal and Son's Tribes of Crane. So with that many players out there and so few companies producing games, there was bound to be some unhappy players. There were, and rather than complain about it, they decided to take action. 
a group of them decided to launch their own company called Adventures by Mail around 1981. The game they launched the company with was Beyond the Stellar Empire, and it immediately became a hit with play-by-mail gamers. With the success of Adventures by Mail, other players and creators got the idea to start their own play-by-mail companies. However, Jim Townsend noted in the same White Wolf article we referenced a moment ago that, quote, in the late 70s and all of the 80s, many small PBM firms have opened their doors and better than 90% of them have failed. Although PBM is an easy industry to get into, staying in business is another thing entirely. Literally hundreds of PBM companies have come and gone, most of them taking the money of would-be customers with them. End quote. In another article he wrote for White Wolf Magazine, this time in February of 1989, Townsend laid out the risks for the play-by-mail industry. Quote, the new PBM company has such a small chance of surviving that no insurance company would write a policy to cover them. Skydivers are a better risk, end quote. He wasn't the only one with concerns. In fact, seven years before Townsend's article, W.G. Armentrow wrote an article for the Space Gamer magazine where they offered their own advice to companies considering getting into the play-by-mail field. They suggested that the companies should spend the time playtesting their games so they could work out as many potential issues with them as possible and thereby mitigate their risk of failure. By the late 1980s, there were more than 100 play-by-mail companies in existence, but most articles from that period have noted that the majority, and by majority I mean very large majority, of those companies were hobbies, which meant they were never intended to make money. Rather, they were run either for fun or for the love of the game. In White Wolf Magazine number 12 in 1988, Jim Townsend estimated that in the year 1988, there were, quote, about a dozen profitable PBM companies in the United States, a few more in the United Kingdom, and about the same number in Australia as in the UK, end quote. Many writers noted at the time that nearly all of the play-by-mail companies in the world were English-speaking, located in countries where English was the primary language. There were a few non-English companies, but so few that their numbers barely impacted the overall numbers of the play-by-mail games overall. While the number of companies worldwide were shrinking, the number of players playing by mail were increasing worldwide. John Tyndall stated in 1992 that the number of play-by-mail gamers in Australia was increasing, though he noted the numbers were smaller than the rest of the world, though he also reminded readers that the percentages and numbers would be smaller due to the smaller market base Australia has as opposed to Europe and the United States. In 1993, Nick Palmer, who was the founder of Flagship Magazine, noted that play-by-mail gaming had worked its way through Europe to the point that, as of his comments, there were thousands of new players enjoying the play-by-mail style of game. In 2002, a listing of 182 primarily European play-by-mail publishers and magazines dedicated to the hobby was released by Flagship Magazine. In the article that accompanied it, the magazine listed only 10 non-UK-based companies, one each from Australia, France, Greece, and the Netherlands, and six in Germany. So, with trends covered, let's get back into the historical timeline. Into the mid to late 1980s, play-by-mail games tended to come from multiple sources. Some of the games were adapted from games and systems that already existed, like D&D and Shadowrun and the like like that. Other games were specifically created and designed to be played with the play-by-mail system. Speaking of those already existing games adapted to the play-by-mail system, in 1985, Pete Tamlin wrote in an article for Flagship Issue 6, Titled Adapting Games for Postal Play, he noted that pretty much all of the popular games for the tabletop had already been adapted to play by mail. The results? 
None of them had ever been as successful as diplomacy. However, Tamlin noted that experimentation in adapting games was still ongoing and that he determined that it wasn't the adaptations of the game that were the problem. In fact, he noted that pretty much every tabletop role-playing game on the market could be played by mail. He noted that these games would be somewhat easier to run since their reliance on a game master meant that a human could manage all the turns and moves and since those were simpler by design anyway, the results could either be mailed back or published in a fanzine for the entire group to see. The games created specifically for the play-by-mail system, however, were much more complicated. We used the example of a thousand possible moves in an earlier point, but that's not the only game nor the only example of complex maneuvers possible in games. And because of that, the games created specifically for play-by-mail tended to require a computer to keep track of all the action. As the number of play-by-mail companies increased in the 1980s, the opportunities for newsletters and magazines dedicated solely to play-by-mail games was increased. As of 1983, the nuts and bolts of PBM was considered to be the primary magazine in the market. However, in July of that year, Paper Mayhem entered the fray with an initial newsletter publication of 100. Flagship joined the party in October of 1983, a UK-based magazine. It covered the action in the UK, but also provided news on games hosted in the U.S. In November of that same year, Gaming Universal printed its first issue in the United States. Within a couple of years, play-by-mail games had attracted the notice of the more mainstream gaming magazines like White Wolf. These magazines began carrying articles for PBM games as well as advertisements for them. In 1984, PBM games were even featured in games and analog magazines. Our friends in Germany got their own play-by-mail magazine in the early 1990s, Martin Popp, based in Sulzburg, began releasing a quarterly magazine called Postspielboot. I think I got the pronunciation right. However, writers and historians agreed that the two preeminent magazines of this period were Flagship and Paper Mayhem. Historically, we've seen that as a style of gaming gains traction with the public, an association is eventually formed to support the hobby. Tabletop role players had done so with the RPGA, and wargamers had formed multiple societies and associations going back to the 1960s. Play-by-Mail Gaming joined this group in 1984 with the creation of the Play-by-Mail Association. By 1985, the association boasted multiple charter members and had begun holding elections for key positions within the group. One interesting proposal from the association was to reimburse players who lost money when a PBM company failed. Now, as we noted earlier, that seemed to be one of the chief complaints of Play-by-Mail gamers, many of whom had bought into the hype of a new Play-by-Mail company only to lose everything they'd put into the game when the company folded within a matter of months. Moving into the 1990s, we see that a number of changes came to the play-by-mail world. In the early 90s, the complexity of the games began to increase even more than they had been in the early to mid-80s. The introduction of the internet also brought a major change to the industry, as it was now possible to send moves and results by email, decreasing the amount of time it took to play a game. For the record, play-by-mail games played through email technically have their own term, play-by-email, or PBEM for short. This period also saw the rise of the play-by-post game, but we're going to cover that separately from play-by-mail games later in the show. Getting back into the PBEMs, Flagship Magazine reported in 1992 that they knew of 40 PBM Game Masters hosting their game on CompuServe. Remember CompuServe? Those were the days. By this point, the turnaround time for play-by-mail games was getting so short that many magazine editors were beginning to use the term turn-based games, since you were waiting hours or minutes instead of days and weeks for responses. 
Flagship Magazine made a similar comment in 2005 when they noted that the term turn-based games was used even more than it had been a decade earlier thanks to a large majority of them being played via the internet. Going back into the early 1990s, the play-by-mail industry was still riding the momentum of new player involvement that they'd built in the 80s. For the record, in 1993, Flagship Magazine estimated that there were 185 active play-by-mail games. In an article published that same year, the Journal of the PBM Gamer wrote that, quote, for the past several years, PBM gaming has increased in popularity, end quote. However, the signs of a turning tide were there, if you were looking for them. And David Weber, who was the editor-in-chief of Paper Mayhem, he'd been looking for him. In a 1994 editorial, he expressed his concerns about the growth in the play-by-mail community. He referred to it as disappointing and pointed also to a reduction in play-by-already-established players. He did note, however, that his data didn't indicate a loss of gamers. Rather, those gamers were going from five to six games per player to two to three games. And he did concede that it was possible this drop was due to financial reasons. However, by 1997, he'd changed his thoughts on that, noting that he'd spoken with multiple play-by-mail companies that had reported to him a drop in players over the previous year. The glory days of play-by-mail games were starting to wane. Hell, Gaming Universal Magazine didn't even make it out of the 80s, having ceased publication in 1988. However, two more important magazines ended their runs in the 90s. Paper Mayhem ended when David Weber died unexpectedly in 1998, and Flagship shut down not too long after that. So what caused the reduction in play-by-mail games? The Internet. In his article, The History of Play-By-Mail and Flying Buffalo, which appeared in issue 79 of the Flying Buffalo Quarterly in May of 1999, Rick Loomis offered, quote, With the growth of the internet, PBM seems to have shrunk and a lot of companies dropped out of the business in the last four or five years. End quote. Shannon Applecline, whose 2014 book Designers and Dragons, the 70s, A History of the Role-Playing Game Industry, is a text we reference frequently in this podcast, she stated in that book that, quote, the advent of the internet knocked most PBM publishers out of business, end quote. One way this happened was that the internet allowed for the globalization of games. While before the internet, it was necessary to have a game company or provider in the country the game was being played in, or at least on the same continent in the case of Europe, the internet brought the entire world together in a matter of seconds. Therefore, a game publisher with a play-by-mail game in the United States could, in theory, have players at all four corners of the globe, and they could all play the same game at virtually the exact same time. In the 1990s, the largest PBM games being played had been licensed globally, with each country they were licensed in having their own license. By the 2000s, this was no longer necessary. The major PBM firms realized they didn't have to license anything, since the net gave them full control over their product and it could be accessed worldwide. So, as we report on the history of the play-by-mail industry today, we first need to note that there's only one play-by-mail magazine still publishing. It's called Suspension Decision, and it launched in November of 2013. Suspense and Decision, which has an online games index, listed as of June 2021, 72 active PBM, PBEM, and turn-based games. However, those games have been going strong for quite some time, which has led a number of writers on the subject to believe that this section of the gaming industry isn't dead yet and may yet see a resurgence of sorts in the future. At this point in the tour, we've checked out the history of play-by-mail games, but in my mind, there's a lingering question. What's the advantage of play-by-mail games? 
The writer, Judith Proctor, gave five reasons she believed gave play-by-mail games an advantage over traditional games. One, plenty of time, possibly days, to plan your move before executing it. Two, never lacking players to face that have new tactics and ideas. Three, the ability to play an incredibly complex game against live opponents. Four, meaning diverse gamers from faraway locations. Five, relatively low costs. That fifth point was driven home by Rick McDowell, the designer of Alamaze. In 2019, he noted that PBM games compare favorably with the prices of games at Barnes & Noble, noting that many games go for 70 bucks, while a game like Nemesis, which is a top-rated game, runs about $189. And I'd note for the record that if you bought all three of the core rulebooks for D&D 5th Edition, Unless you got some sort of a deal, you'd be well around 120 to 150 bucks. So that $189 isn't nearly as expensive when you compare it like that. Numerous writers would add a sixth point to that. They've noted that PBM gives you the possibility of playing the same game for years. Now, of course, where there are advantages, there are disadvantages. Writer Andrew Greenberg pointed back to the cost of games as a disadvantage. He noted that most PBM games require a setup cost as well as a fee per turn. He added that you don't have the same atmosphere in PBM as you would have with a face-to-face -face game. Finally, he noted that the levels of complexity of the PBM game, as well as turn processing delays, which still happen today, are negatives that some players just can't seem to move past. Let's look at one more area of play-by-mail games before we move on, and it's something we always try to cover, the mechanics. Regardless of the game being played, every play-by-mail game begins with the setup, which is when the players join the game, are assigned or pick what they're playing, and the rules and fees for playing are agreed upon. The length of turnaround for turns, by the way, is considered part of the rules, so it would be covered here. Once this all goes down, the game begins. Players begin submitting their turn orders, and in the days that games were actually played by mail, this was done by filling out a paper order sheet and then mailing it back to the gaming company. You'd have multiple options for orders and things you'd check, yada, yada. Anyway, nowadays there are order sheets provided either online or via email for players to use and email back or submitting directly from the website if that's an option. The author R. Danard broke the typical PBM turndown into four parts. First, the company informs all of the players what the results of the previous turn were. Next, players can conduct diplomatic activities. Granted, this isn't required, and some games don't allow for it, but if a game does, and the players want to, this is the point at which they take place. After that, players complete their next turn orders and send them back to the GM or to the company. Finally, the turns are processed, and we begin the process again. Or, like I say frequently, lather, rinse, repeat. Next up, let's check out our second topic for the day, play-by-post role-playing games. Let's begin this part of the tour by defining what a play-by-post game is. Also known as a sim, a play-by-post game is an online, text-based role-playing game. Players interact both with each other and a predefined environment via text. One feature of the play-by-post game is that it can be based on pretty much anything. Existing role-playing games, novels that don't already have games based on them, uh, television and movies, original settings. Hell, if you could think it up, there's probably a play-by-post game dedicated to it. Play-by-post games got their start on the large computer networks and bulletin board systems that were utilized by major American universities during the 1980s. They got their inspiration from the traditions of fanzines, which are fan-published magazines for the uninitiated, and traditional role-playing games. 
When IRC was created and introduced to this process, users became able to engage in real-time chat, which allowed for real-time role-playing by post. Of course, the explosion of hosting software and browser-based services such as AOL and Yahoo Chat in the 90s and beyond allowed the play-by-post game to move off the college networks and onto the World Wide Web, allowing for players worldwide to engage in the process. So how does a play-by-post game work? Since I go by the bad GM on my other podcast, I'll use myself as a part of the example here. Let's say I wanted to host my Hunter the Reckoning role-playing game in a play-by-post format. First, I'd find myself a forum to use, and there are many to choose from, which we'll elaborate on in a moment. I'm a pretty simple guy when it comes to using the web, so I'd probably choose either play-by-email or a role-playing blog. For the sake of detail here, let's go with a role-playing blog. Now, unlike most blogs, this blog would only be accessible by the players in the game, so unless we, as a group, decided to allow the net as a whole to see what we're doing, we're the only ones who can. And we're certainly the only ones who can post on it. So let's say I've got four players, Tim, Susan, Bobby, and Lisa. Each of them would create their own character for the game, and they can either choose to create one out of whole cloth or use a character from an existing source that would work for our game. An example of that second choice, by the way, would be if somebody wanted to play as one of the brothers from Supernatural. I'd name them, but I've never actually watched the show. I know, Bad Wayne. Now, as the GM, I'm in charge of putting together the NPCs for the game, much like in a traditional tabletop game. I have the same options as the players, so if they're pulling characters from existing product, so can I. Oh, and I have the option to either allow the players to allow their characters to evolve and grow, i.e. level up, or I can choose to put the rule in that no character can be altered without my approval, which is known in the hobby as God modding. And yeah, I guess maybe I have a bit of a God complex. (laughs) My entire game group just went... Now, we have two options for playing the game. We can either use online dice rolling programs linked to the blog, or if we're feeling trusting, we can allow the players to roll real dice and report the results, or we can go with a diceless format. Because when it comes to gaming, I don't trust the die rolls I can't see, and since I'm not technologically advanced enough to link a program to a blog, we're going diceless for this game. So, here's an example of how it goes. Let's say our players have been exposed to some sort of toxin or event that alters their minds, making them turn on one another. The inevitable part of this is that somebody's going to attack somebody. Here's how it would look. Oh, and I'm going to give the name of the person saying it first so you know it. Wayne, you all believe that the other three people with you are out to kill you. Without a doubt, they'll take you out if you let them. What do you do? All four players, since I didn't name one specifically, are going to all type their responses at the same time. Susan, I try to kick Bobby in the balls. Tim, I pull my gun and shoot at Susan. Lisa, I go full defense so I can figure out who's coming at me first. Bobby, I'm swinging on Susan. As the GM, I would look at these and determine who hits, who misses, and what happens next. Now, since Susan and Bobby are both attacking each other, I'm going to have to decide whether or not one of their blows would hit first. I'm also taking into account that Tim is pulling his gun to shoot at Susan. Unless he's Billy the Kid or Quick Draw McGraw, it's going to take him an extra second to pull his gun, so I'm going to leave him out for just a second. Obviously, with nobody attacking Lisa, she can assume a defensive posture and wait and see what happens. Now, Bobby is probably expecting somebody to swing on him, so a kick south of the border would take him by surprise, so Susan gets the hit on that one, and I'd rule that Bobby would definitely be winded for a minute and would drop to his knees, possibly going down face first since he was in the process of swinging when that foot made contact with his family jewels. Susan wouldn't get a chance to enjoy that, though, because Tim's shot would hit her seconds later. So with those results in, we'd start the next round. 
Now, I admit that's a pretty extreme example. Typically, I'd call out one player at a time, see what they want to do, and possibly allow for a reaction to that action before moving on. It's up to the GM to decide how that's going to work, and the really good ones make sure their players are well aware of that fact before they even start playing the game, much like it should be in the tabletop world. One thing I didn't really make clear is that frequently players need to speak in third person so that everyone understands who is talking and doing what to whom. So let's keep that in mind as well. Now, I said something about there being a number of mediums you can utilize for play by post, so let's take a little time and take a look at some of them. Message boards are a popular forum for these types of games. Many of us know them as internet forums, and this style of game has its own terms. Play by Message Board, or PBMB for short, and they're also known as Forum Role Playing or Forum Games. Most of these PBMB have dice rolling programs built into them, and they have the advantage of not being in real time. That allows players to read over what's happened to the point, and then include their own decisions before they make their next moves. Twitter and Tumblr have started being used for these types of games, though an online search will turn up a number of sites that host as well, such as TopRSites.com. Play-by-post games are the basic style of game that I outlined a moment ago. They're hosted by message sites, and many of them have a hierarchy of moderators to handle the traffic. Play-by-email, which we discussed a little bit earlier in the show, would definitely be something done between a small group since you'd be sharing an email thread. And that's exactly how it works. The GM sends an email to the group describing and detailing the situation. Then each member of the group does a reply all to what's out there detailing their responses to it. This form also allows a player to send an email to the GM only if they have a thought they don't want the other gamers to know about. But most games also have a rule that if one player wants to talk to another, the GM must be CC'd in on the conversation. Play by chat is another option for gamers. Most of us have probably heard of one of these since Discord is probably the most popular program to use for that type of game. And it has a ton of advantages. Each player's text color is different, so even if they don't speak in the third person, we know who did what. Plus, like so many of the other options, it's limited to those who've been invited to the party. It also allows for chat between players that cannot be seen by others, which some like and some don't like for this style of game. The play-by-internet, or PBI game, takes place on a dedicated server. It also requires all of the players to be online and on the site at the same time. Each player can typically make moves independent of the other players because the software manages the outcomes. There's also a fixed time for each turn, so players have to think quickly. Play-by-wiki is another version of that system. Using the wiki software, it allows for editing of all posts, which can allow for alteration of previous comments in order to fix decisions that could cause plot holes in the game. It also means that the players don't have to necessarily be the best on-the-spot writers because they can go back later and make their stuff look better. The role-playing blog was the forum I chose for my example. Tumblr and LiveJournal are two popular hosts for these. Now, frequently, one of these games consists of multiple blogs, which I didn't use for my example. There's the main blog, which is the blog I maintain and control as the sources of the game itself, and the player blogs, which the players use to post their moves. Each player has their own blog, and they role-play by reblogging each other's posts and adding their own actions to them. Last up, we've got role-playing via Google Documents. These are a lot like blogs and wikis in that we can set the users to just be those involved with the games. Plus, Google Docs is an easy program to get since it's free and it's pretty easy to use. I mean, I use it all the time. It should be noted that this is a very new way to play, so it's not nearly as popular or widespread as the others. So, after looking at what a play-by-post game is and where we can find it, there's still a question left to ask. What exactly is a play-by-post game? 
The best example to me would be a fan fiction created by a group of people. One story, multiple writers. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to take a look at a couple of games I've touched on in recent episodes, GURPS and RIFS. As we wrap up this week, I wanted to take a minute to announce something big that we've done for Bad GM Productions. Earlier this week, we launched our website, and I'd encourage all of you to check it out. It's badgmproductions.net. We've got links to both the podcasts there, as well as pictures of the players in my home game, since they get mentioned in every episode just about of Bad GM's campaign build-along. So if you're curious about what we all look like, check it out. Also, we'll be posting website-exclusive videos there, as well as polls about upcoming shows and just other thoughts that come to our goofy little minds. So make sure you bookmark it and make it a part of your regular routine. Again, that's badgmproductions.net. And speaking of Bad GM's campaign build-along, I would kindly request that you give that show a shot. We take one game, build out an entire campaign for it, and you can use it for your game free of charge. Right now, we're working up a game for Deadlands Classic, though I hear tell we may be doing Firefly, Paranoia, and Hunter in the future. You just never know. That's Bad GM's campaign build-along, available wherever you get your podcasts or at our website, badgmproductions.com. Net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook. And I've been doing this wrong. I had to go back and check again. This is how you do it. Facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. That's B-A-D-G-M-P-R-O-D. All one. Twitter, you can hit us up at BadGMP, YouTube, BadGMProductions, email, BadGMProductions at gmail.com, and I would note we have links to all of those online at BadGMProductions.net. Next week, it's Alphabet Soup. All right, next week we're touring GURPS and Riffs, but that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.